Hi, I'm Stacey Jacobson. Welcome to a bonus edition of The Pulse. Today, we are here to talk about the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and the wider implications on the monetary policy and the banking system. As this is an evolving news cycle, I will add that we are recording this mid-morning on Tuesday, March 14th. Now, we are fortunate to have Todd Bix back with us here. Todd is the national director of our core and alternative fixed income efforts, and I have asked him to join us because of his deep background in the U.S. banking sector. And you may remember that Todd joined us a few episodes back for the discussion on income and alternatives. Hey, Todd, thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to join. Good to see you again. Todd, I want to start with the why. Why did Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank collapse? Let's just think what a bank does. What it does is it takes in a deposit and it then lends it out. So your deposits are your cost of funds, what I'm paying you for your savings deposit. And then what I can earn is what I'm lending it out at. And then profits are impacted by losses, right? So that's very simple. Silicon Valley Bank had a very unique depositor base. So that's how you fund your balance sheet. You use those deposits to make loans or to buy securities, whatever it is. They worked with the venture capital community. So lots of large deposits with very large firms, but concentrated in one deposit base. And the issue last year was that those venture capital funds weren't seeing inflows from their investors, and they were drawing down those funds. So if I'm a bank, let's say I had $1 deposits and $1 in loans. If my deposits drop to 50 cents, I have to replace that 50 cents. So they were faced with an issue. They'd bought a bunch of securities using the deposits. When the deposits started being depleted, you have to replace that funding. They could compete for more deposits, pay up for things like certificates of deposits, but that's not going to react to large, chunky outflows from those venture capital funds. So their last chance was, or their last resort was to go to the Federal Home Loan Bank. Now, their major issue was that their securities they bought were returning 1.7%, and the Federal Home Loan Bank was lending at 5%. So if I, if I have that choice, earn 1.7, pay 5, or rip the Band-Aid off, sell those securities, and realize the losses, and raise some equity, they took the latter. They said, okay, well, we'll sell the securities, we'll realize that large loss, raise some equity, it would be fine. But the issue was that they have a community, venture capital, that's very communicative. And there were two very prominent individuals, this is in the press, uh, that were out calling all of their venture capital friends and saying, pull your deposits. This, in other words, this didn't have to happen, but it shouldn't have happened, both with them and with Signature and then also with Silvergate. All of them had a concentrated exposure to a certain type of depositor. Silicon Valley was venture capital. Silvergate and Signature both were cryptocurrencies. So they put themselves in a corner if those deposits were drawn down on. And all three of them saw that and were faced with a similar conundrum. The Fed, the FDIC, and Treasury Department rolled out emergency measures, including a program to backstop all deposits in excess of the uh, traditional $250,000. Yet depositors are still looking for safety, and they were moving cash from regional banks to larger, more um, systematically important banks. You know, why was that, and do we think that's something that will continue? I think because it's, it's so much panic. I see some parallels here. In the great financial crisis, it took a long time to mobilize Congress, et cetera, for action. 
And if you think about the amount of Fed balance sheet that was used, it was very gradual over a period of years. I think the Treasury and I think the Fed has learned from that. So if you think back to the pandemic, the Fed could only cut rates about a percent to zero, but they did it instantaneously. And then they came out and said, we're going to buy stuff and supported the markets. So they learned from that and said, look, we've got to act quickly and decisively. Otherwise, it becomes an issue. So I think what the Fed and Secretary of Treasury Yellen did was said, look, we need to come out and be decisive and back this so that there's not a run on good banks. Now, part of what went around those venture capital communities were a bunch of bank analyst reports. And one of those tables said, if all these banks took all these unrealized losses on their securities that are marked daily and the ones they would hold to maturity, which you don't have to take marks on, what would that do to their capital? So this is a a worst case scenario, liquidating the bank type of scenario. But many of those banks that were caught up in this didn't have exposure to venture capital funds and didn't have deposits from crypto-based funds. And I think people just reacted to that draconian scenario of worst, worst, worst case scenario, and then kind of pulled deposits and asked questions later. There's names we, we won't mention that were down dramatically that are up over 50% today. Today's the 14th. Uh, and I think that reflects the fact that people are now understanding that this was an isolated type of issue and not systemic. Todd, you mentioned the massive unrealized losses of Silicon Valley Bank. You know, it seems that maybe the system was a little bit fragile, right? Should the fact that they decided to go the route of taking the unrealized losses have caused this run on the bank and the ultimate failure? You know, I'm not Silicon Valley's management team, although they're not the management team either, right? So they're not, they're out. From a balance sheet management perspective, you need to diversify your funding base. That was a big part of the issue. And investing at the end of 2021 when rates were so low probably wasn't smart either. We've talked about with our with our banks team, you know, they could have hedged. And hedge means you offset your risk. So if you're earning 1.7% from your AAA rated mortgage portfolio, right? That's government backed, really safe. But that's prone to being marked to market based on where rates are. If you would hedge that into floating rate, we wouldn't be having this conversation because they would have made more and more and they wouldn't have to worry about funding that. So should it have happened? No. Should they have been more diversified? Yes. Now, the run on the bank that was caused, I mean, you've got to know your client base. And at some point they should have said, now's the time to rip off the Band-Aid. And they just waited too long. Okay, Todd, the Fed is meeting again on March 22nd. With the recent labor market data and inflation data showing persistent strength, it was expected that the Fed would raise rates by another 50 basis points in that meeting. How does the turbulence in the banking sector change that expectation? They've said we will be data dependent. The employment report was stronger than expected. Last month's employment report was off the charts at over 500,000 jobs created. The inflation report today, the 14th of March, was also stronger than expected. So if you're in the camp that they would cut and there is one competitor that says, I don't think that's going to happen, I think it's less a probability that they would not do anything, although they could cite that. I mean, there's precedent. They raised 50 basis points when they're going to raise 25 back when we got a really difficult number out of Michigan 
consumer inflation expectations back at the beginning of the hiking. But, you know, I, I look at this and I, it's probably going to be a quarter point. Does this mean that they may not raise three more times? Potentially. You know, we've had people writing on, you know, competitors that kind of talk about the Fed will raise until something breaks. I don't think that's their intention. They wanted to raise until their Fed funds rate was above neutral, which means it would impact growth. It would restrict growth. And I think we're already there. So I don't know if they have to go much further. It's just hard when the data reports come in and they're so strong to say, hey, we should stop now. I think they would much rather get to a point that hurts a little bit, maybe not puts banks out of business. And although I say, I think those three banks are definitely complicit in what happened. They, they brought that upon themselves. But I think they stay longer and higher because the market's now starting to price in cuts. I think that's a little aggressive. So where do we go from here? What do you think the longer term impact on regional banks will be? So when we say regional, we're not talking about the banks of America, the world. We're talking about banks like Silicon Valley, that size. And before they ran into their issues and uh, obviously were taken over, they were probably a $16, $17 billion bank, so very large. What we've seen with our data checks is that a lot of the big banks, Bank of America, et cetera, there was a flight to quality. They were termed significant financial institutions or SIPIs during the great financial crisis. Why? Because people flight to what they perceive as strength in large banks. We saw from the great financial crisis, that's not always necessarily the case, but that's why bank regulators have increased the amount of capital that they have to hold. We've also seen small community banks, and we've talked to a lot of small community bank CEOs talking about really small ones a billion to two billion in assets, they have not had deposits pulled. They're gaining deposits. So whereas the larger regional banks that may have concentrated deposits, whatever it is, may be losing deposits, smaller, well-run banks, which is what bank regulators want because there's consolidation going on. They want smaller, more capable banks. They were the ones that gave out the PPP loans, which shows a confidence in them. I think what you shouldn't do is panic. The bank system has double the capital it did prior to the great financial crisis. There's always going to be a team or a company or a bank that pushes the limits as these three banks did, being very concentrated in one depositor base. That's not the system. And that's why Janet Yellen and the Fed acted decisively to say, this is not systemic, but we don't want it to become systemic because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay, who's next? Who's the next one? There isn't another venture capital bank like that. And there's not other banks with massive concentrations of deposits from crypto funds. So I think it's not to panic. But if you are, keep your deposits below the $250,000 FDIC limit. That's great advice, Todd. Thanks so much for being with us today. It was a pleasure, as always. We wanted to bring you this special update this week in between our regularly scheduled episodes. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you never miss a beat. I'm your host, Stacey Jacobson.